Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Also to focus your thoughts, get the cobwebs out this morning. After a work day yesterday, a lot of people put out a lot of effort and did a lot of good work. But I imagine you're a little tired this morning. Your muscles are sore, aches in places you didn't know you had places anymore. And so uh, we can focus our attention and concentration so we can be prepared for the study of the Word. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, again, we thank you that we can come together as a body of believers to worship through the teaching of your word this morning. Father, we know that studying your word is the highest form of worship because it is in that act that we recognize that nothing is more important than learning how you think, nothing is more important than learning about you, and nothing is more important than learning about your revelation to us. And so we give you honor and glory just by attending a Bible class, attending the study of your word each week. Father, now we continue to pray for our nation, for our president, that you would continue to give him wisdom and objectivity uh, in the midst of many advisors and in the midst of much pressure from different, uh, different interest groups. We pray that you would give him wisdom to make the right decisions to represent this nation and to keep us on a path that will maintain our freedom. Father, we continue to pray for this congregation. We pray for our spiritual growth. We pray that we might be able to keep doctrine first and foremost in our lives, and we pray that we would be uh, constantly motivated to push on to spiritual maturity and to glorify you to the maximum in our own spiritual lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed it, but the last couple of Sundays, at least that I've been here, last Sunday I had a a brief reprieve, it seems, but it's either the uh, the air here, but I think it, I came back to Houston, from Houston twice with this horrible congestion, and I can feel it in my voice. Uh, Bryce told me, or somebody told me the la- two weeks ago when I spoke that, golly, they, I didn't sound bad over the over the airwaves, but when they came up and talked to me personally, they could hear all the all the garbage in my voice. So I I have felt for the last at least two lessons that we've been teaching that I've been forcing every word out of my vocal cords. So uh, I hope that uh, by this time next week I'll finally be past all of this. So we're going to, I'm going to at least muddle through as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians this morning. So open your Bibles 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's look at the context of what we're studying so that what we cover later this morning will at least have some grounding in the text. It's always important that wherever we go, we understand that that everything must ultimately relate back to the text itself and to what the Word of God says. Now, we're studying a very difficult passage to interpret, one that I have studied a lot for many years. It has passages in there related to the covering of men's head. Uh, In verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. There's Verse 5 talks about women's head covering. Then we have passages down like verse 14 that talks about does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now this section from verses 4 through 15 specifically addresses some problems and probably some questions that the Corinthian church had posed to the Apostle Paul. This is a passage that is often uh, cited and is often uh, the focal point of a tremendous amount of controversy today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 through 16, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I mean 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which says that women should be silent in the church, are like the, the red flags before a whole group of feminists in, in this country and in, in many churches, and they want to interpret all of those passages in light of Galatians chapter 3, where it says that in Christ there is neither male nor female, bond or slave, uh, for all are one in Christ. Uh, that is a hermeneutical problem, which we'll get to by the end of this morning, hopefully. But this is such a lightning rod of controversy, and it is a difficult passage to interpret because to understand what's going on here, you have to understand a lot of what was going on in the Corinthian church and in the culture at the time. So you have to weave your way between two very difficult uh, difficult uh, issues. The first is you don't want to go too far on the culture side, which is what one tendency is, to go too far on the culture side because then you want you, the tendency is to end up saying, well, everything that Paul is saying here about the relationship of men and women, the hierarchical relationship between, of the man over the wife is all culturally determined. Well, once you do that, then you could easily go into a lot of passages in Scripture and take your razor blade and just cut those verses out because you could make some sort of culturally relevant argument. On the other hand, if you go uh, too far in the other direction, uh, which I might call a hyper-literalism, you end up, I think, making some serious mistakes and you end up where the Roman Catholic Church is, where Plymouth Brethren churches are, and some other what I would call hyper-conservative groups or hyper-traditionalist groups who take the head covering as some sort of hat or veil and that women can't uh, come into public worship unless they're wearing a hat or a veil or some sort of little doily or Kleenex on top of their head. It's what it actually looks like. And that, of course, goes into some sort of a a rigid uh, literalism and formalism where 
you have women wearing hats and saying, oh, okay, this shows that I'm in, under the authority of my husband, and then they go home and they, and they wear the pants in the family. And so it's, there's all kinds of problems in, this, in understanding everything in this passage, but it is crucial to understand this passage if you're going to have the right kind of relationship in the marriage and in the home and in the church that honors and glorifies God. And Paul's argument here is not based on culture. It is not based on culture. It's not based on Jewish culture. It's not based on Greek culture in Corinth at the time. What we know, and I'll get into more studies on this as we as we get into the passage in more detail next week, but the Greek women had a measure of freedom, at least, in comparison to Oriental women. And by Oriental women, I'm not talking about Chinese. I'm not talking about the Japanese. Remember, uh, the Middle East is Asia. And so when you talk about Assyrian cultures, you talk about Mesopotamian cultures, these are, uh, these are Eastern or Southeastern Asian uh, countries. And so those cultures did emphasize the wearing of a veil much more so than the Greek culture did. And there was a measure of freedom more for many Greek women, at least in the classical period, than, than you had in some of the Oriental cultures. If you look at Paul's own background in Tarsus, women in Tarsus were, during the time that Paul grew up, were expected to wear a veil where only the eyes showed. It's not a whole lot different from what we see in some of the Islamic countries in, in Afghanistan. That was the environment in which Paul grew up. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. So obviously, Paul is approaching this apart from the, the Jewish distinctives. Remember, the Jewish, in the Jewish uh, framework, the men, at least later on, now later on they wore the, the uh, uh, yarmulke, but at this time, they were wearing a, a talith, which was a prayer shawl. That is uh, documented historically that if you went into the synagogue, you would wear a prayer shawl. And Paul says in verse 3, or excuse me, in verse 4, that every man praying or prophesied having his head covered dishonors his head. That clearly goes against Jewish practice. Furthermore, the high priest was, had, a, had a specified headdress that he wore when he went into the tabernacle and into the temple. So if Paul is talking about uh, covering your head with a physical covering, then he would be saying some things that go completely against Judaism and go completely against the Old Testament. So there's some real problems here because Paul would then have a have a difficulty going into a, a synagogue and participating in the worship there, he would expect be expected to cover his head with a prayer shawl. Uh, he would, uh, uh, but and that would run counter to what Paul says in First Corinthians uh, chapter nine, where he's going to be all things to all people, and when he's a, with the Jews, he's going to be at, at the with the, as much like a Jew as possible without sacrificing doctrine. So if he was violating those traditions. Then when Paul went into the synagogue, he would have some major problems. He would not be able to do that. He wouldn't be able to participate in Jewish worship. So it is obvious from looking at, at the text here that there are many difficulties in understanding this, and the most important of which is that we have to get back to Paul's basic, basic argument. 
And that argument has to do with the created purposes of God for males and females in marriage, in family, and in society at large. The problem we have today is that too many people want to approach the text from a human viewpoint background, and it is that acculturation from whatever their background is, but for us it's 21st century and late 20th century uh, American culture, postmodern culture, we, and, and feminist culture, we want to fa- uh, address the problem from that framework to somehow make the Bible less abrasive to the way we life is generally practiced in America. Uh, as a result of radical feminism in the last 40 years, many people have come to the assumption that that fathers' roles are completely interchangeable with mothers' roles. And you have uh, fathers who stay home with the kids while the mothers go off to work and, and earn a living. And that is seen to be completely acceptable and that there's no problem with that. We also have in the realm of perversion uh, people who believe that it's just fine to have interchangeable sex partners and to be bisexual. And if you want to be with a member of the same sex this month, that's fine. And next month, if it's uh, a heterosexual relationship, well, that's fine. In the church, we have the idea that women can be pastors, that somehow this is some sort of uh, patriarchal, misogynist idea that women cannot be pastors, women can't be in the pulpit, women can't do anything in the church that men, men can do. And as that applies in an even broader sense in the culture at large, uh, anyone who believes that there are jobs that are exclusively the domain of the male is defined culturally as being someone who's into patriarchal sexism, and that's politically incorrect and socially unacceptable. And anybody who has those beliefs, well, let's just keep them in the closet and not let anybody know that we actually know somebody who holds those beliefs. And so when that kind of mentality has been indoctrinated in us through the culture at large, through media, through films, through television, through news commentary, uh, through the school system. And one of the things that has happened today is that at a broader level, uh, many of the school book publishers have produced lists of words that cannot be used in public school textbooks. And so by removing this kind of vocabulary and also as well as images from textbooks, they are reshaping the thought form of American children. For example, you can't refer to the founding fathers as the founding fathers. They are the founders. But if you call them the founding fathers, you're guilty of sexism, and, and uh, that's politically incorrect. You can't have any pictures in many textbooks that display women doing uh, domestic chores. You can't have pictures of men doing the things that are traditionally considered to be uh, jobs for men. You want to have you know, women working in steel mills, and you want to have men uh, cooking in the kitchen at home, but let's not have images of where men and women are in traditional uh, male and female jobs because that just is, is going to communi- or continue this whole culture of patriarchy, and so we have to change that. And so there are uh, hundreds of examples that I could use, but this is a self-conscious effort 
put forth by the educational elite in order to reshape the thinking of our youth and to get them to thinking about uh, the roles of men and women in non-biblical ways and in ways that ultimately will lead to the destruction of the core fabric of a society. There never has been a matriarchal society that has ever had a measure of success. In fact, matriarchal societies in history are always societies that are in deterioration and decline. And when uh, any society starts developing the idea of interchangeability of male and female roles and where the women are the leaders in the society, the society ultimately collapses and is destroyed. So we have to be aware that there is an extremely strong pressure from the cosmic system around us to soften the interpretation of these passages because they're just not that acceptable or maybe they're not that practical. So we have to address the problem of how we got this way. But before we get there, I want to review briefly verse 3 of chapter 11, which gives the foundation for Paul's argument here. He has an extremely intricate argument here, an extremely sophisticated tap dance. So the reason I say that is I think there are at least three different groups in Corinth that are raising questions about uh, the, the covering of a woman's head or, or, or a man's head. There's those who think that, that how they wear their hair is just an irrelevant issue and it doesn't have anything to do with worship and it doesn't have anything to do with daily life. And so the women were wearing their hair however they wanted to. On the other hand, there were those who, who said that, no, there had to be a strict traditionalism, and so they were arguing that the women had to wear their hair a certain way. And then there was a third group that was arguing for a literal veil type of covering. There were at least those three groups. There may have been a number of others. And each was approaching this from the idea that they were trying to do what Paul said to do. This is not a passage where Paul is dealing with a an overt rebelliousness on the part of the Corinthian congregation as he had earlier. This is the thrust of verse 2 where he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. He is recognizing that their core desire is to be biblically correct and to apply the word here, but they've gotten off base. So he begins the argument by going to ultimate realities. He doesn't start by how uh, the Romans and the women in Roman society were, were um, dressed or how they related to the husbands. He doesn't go to Greek culture. He doesn't go to Jewish culture. He goes back to ultimate realities in terms of man's relationship to God. And in verse 3 he states, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And what we have seen in our exegesis of this verse is that the Greek word kephale, which is translated head, is a word that does not mean source, it means authority. Actually, there's two meanings to kephale. The first is a literal meaning, which refers to that thing sitting on your shoulders that you use sometimes. And the other is a metaphorical use of authority. It is used in a, in a, a couple of extremely nuanced sections or, or passages where it does refer to, to uh, the source of something. But in that case, it is a, it is a plural 
Here it is a singular, so there is no documentation of the singular noun ever referring to source. So that is not the point here, and that, of course, is the attempt that the feminist, at one angle the feminist approach this with, is saying that, that headship is source, it's not authority. See, the ultimate problem in every form of feminism, whether it's evangelical feminism, and that's a technical term, which means that these are women and scholars who, who claim to believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God, but they don't believe that there are role distinctions between men and women in the body of Christ. Uh, then that, that's the that's the best form of feminism, and then the worst form, if there is a best form, and then the worst form is those that just believe uh, don't believe the Bible at all, and they just are, they're, they're basically those who have an antagonistic attitude toward males, and as far as they're concerned, they just want to get rid of all the men in society. That men are no good, uh, and and are very little benefit and everything that men have done in history just produced warfare and famine. All the evils of society are ultimately laid at the doorstep of men. And we've heard so much of this that men have been starting to buy it, and most men in American culture have a bad self-image as males. They don't understand who they are as men created in the image of God and therefore not understanding what the Bible teaches about the role and function and purpose of a man in the home, in society, there just feel tremendous pressure uh, from all kinds of uh, social directions. And so it's produced a collapse in the home. And many Christian men are not functioning as Christian men in the home because of all of this external human viewpoint pressure. So Paul doesn't begin with culture. He begins with absolutes in terms of the relationship of Christ to every man. Christ is the authority over every man. In the same way, the authority over a woman is the man, that is, her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There is authority even in the Trinity, and we've spent the last uh, couple of lessons going over those important doctrines. Now, last time we left this passage and we began to go back into Genesis to see how, or to answer the question, how did we get into the mess we're in now in male and female relationships? And there's really two answers. There's an ultimate answer, which goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, and then there is a modern answer. So let's begin to explore how we got in this particular position. Let's go back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And for those of you who have been coming faithfully on Wednesday night, a lot of this is going to be review for you. But I recognize that many of you haven't been here for the Genesis series as we've been going through Genesis chapter 1. And so this is going to be some new information. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, we see the emphasis on God creating man in his image and likeness. It is a, a structure, a, a literary structure, where you have a, two verses, verses 26 and 28, which basically mirror each other, and then you have a different statement in the middle. And so the, it's like a frame, verses 26 and 28, frame verse 27, so that verse 27 stands out as the important point that is being made in these three verses. 
Let's look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the first point that we see here is that man is made in the image of God and according to the likeness of God. And as we have studied This indicates that mankind here, this is talking about the human race, not male in verse 26. He's not talking about let us make males in our image. He is talking about the human race, let us make mankind in our image and according to our likeness. The Hebrew terminology here, betsalmenu for image, in our image, and kidmutenu, according to our likeness, is best translated as our representative and in our likeness. As our representative and in our likeness. This recognizes the function of the image. That it has a, it has a, a function. We are to represent God as the ruler over all creation. That man was created, male and female, to represent God and to rule over all creation. The likeness aspects indicates that the immaterial nature of man in his soul, his self-consciousness, his mentality, his volition, and his conscience reflects the immaterial nature of God. So that man in his unfallen state in his self-consciousness he had a perfect understanding of who he was and what he was to do because his self-consciousness was in tune with God consciousness there's no distortion from sin in his mentality man could think clearly based on the reality of divine viewpoint thinking and God's revelation so that in his thinking he could think the thoughts of God as God revealed them to him without any distortion coming from a cosmic system or a sin nature. In his volition he was positive toward God until the fall and therefore he always believed God and always trusted God and there was no breakdown of his volition and therefore there were no negative consequences due to bad decisions. And it's his conscience he had a divine set of norms and standards that were the result of God's revelation to him and so all of his decisions based on those norms and standards were correct and accurate. Therefore as long as he functioned in that way he represented God over creation. So man has a function and is and as a representative of God, and that led to a specific, uh, specific responsibility, and that is described as having dominion or ruling. He is to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the purpose of creating man in God's uh, as God's image and in his likeness is so that he will rule creation. God has delegated to man rulership responsibility over planet earth. And then we have verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is a crucial verse for understanding the issues in Genesis, I mean, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. God creates man in his image, mankind in his image, but he creates them male and female. This tells us that both the man and the woman are equally in the image of God. Equally in the image of God. That means that that 
you can't say that the woman has less of the image. The man has more of the image. They are equally image bearers. But there are certain distinctions in the image and likeness aspect. There are certain distinctions. There is a male image and a female image. There is a, a difference between men and women, not simply in terms of, of the obvious physical distinctions, but also in terms of their soul makeup. Well, our second point that we saw was that image describes man's function. He's created as God's image according to the standard of God's immaterial essence. So men and women equally ha- ha- I mean, are equally self-conscious. They have equal intellectual ability. They have an equal volitional capacity and equal in terms of their conscience. So they can equally fulfill their God-given roles and God-given tasks. I'm going to skip ahead over this. Man and woman, therefore, together, man and woman, therefore, together, represent God on the earth. Together they represent God on the earth, but like any team, they have distinct roles. They have distinct roles. Now, what do those roles involve? In Genesis 2.15, we have the first statement related to the dominion mandate given by God in, in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. In Genesis 2.15, we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, here it is talking about the male. This is the, the, the second chapter of Genesis gives a detailed look at what went on on the sixth day of creation. The Lord God takes the man. He hasn't created the woman yet. He takes Adam, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Actually, the Hebrew word to cultivate is avad, and it means to work. So there is labor. And when we get there in our exegesis of Genesis chapter 2, we'll deal with the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of labor and work. But there is labor and there is work. But it is not laborious and toilsome. See, as soon as I say that there was labor, the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, it's paradise. It was a perfect environment. They had to work. Uh, Maynard G. Krebs, work. For those of you who are old enough to remember the old Dobie Gillis show, uh, there was work in the garden, yes, but it's not cursed yet. The ground is in complete harmony with with man so that that work is not toilsome there's responsibility they're just not sitting around all day lying out on the divan eating grapes or whatever fruit they wanted to and having a wonderful time they are they have responsibilities and there's labor but it is not toilsome it's not negative it's not laborious they are to work avad and to keep it shamar or to guard so there's responsibility given to the man. The next responsibility given to the man is in Genesis 2.19, where God gives the man the responsibility to name the animals. God initiated human vocabulary in the first part of uh, Genesis chapter 1, where he calls the darkness night and the, day, and the, and the light day. And in Genesis 2.19, he gives man the responsibility to name the animals. And in the process of naming the animals, uh, Adam recognizes that there is no counterpart for him. There is no one uh, like him. Uh, at the end of verse 20, for, but for Adam there was not found a helper, that is an aidser, an assistant uh, suitable for him. So God then makes a counterpart for him, the woman, 
and brings her to Adam, makes him from, takes a rib from his side, and from that creates the woman. So she, she is derivatively in the image of God. Now remember, all of this, this doesn't mean it's less, but it shows that there is an integral relationship, a racial, in terms of the human race, a racial unity between men and women. If the woman had been created distinctly or separately from Adam, then there would not be a racial unity there. Of course, the implication for that is that Christ would have, or a Savior would have had to come as male and as female to die for the human race. So by taking the woman from the side of Adam, there is a, a, a unity in the human race that all derive ultimately from the creation of that first uh, male, Adam. So the woman is created, and her role is to be a helper, an assistant, an aider. Now, of course, in, in modern feminism, there's a tremendous attack on that idea, that that's just some patriarchal idea that some, some man wrote this because he wanted to keep women subservient. And that's not true. That's not the function at all. God is called an aider. So as soon as we think the idea of being a helper is somehow negative or demeaning, then you're making a theological statement against God. God himself, again and again, refers to himself as an aider, as a helper or an assistant for man. God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. So this is not a demeaning concept. In fact, if that word is applied to God, it is an exaltive concept. It is a, a position of honor and respect to be one who comes alongside and is to help or assist the man in carrying out his God-given role of exercising dominion over the creation. Now, this is a crucial concept for marriage because it tells the woman that her primary responsibility is to help or assist the man in achieving God's plan for his life. That tells you, ladies, that when you get married, you need to wait until this guy has some kind of understanding of where God is taking him and God's plan for his life, because otherwise you, you might not uh, want to help him get there. Now, this puts the modern woman in, in a difficult situation. Now, if, if you're married to a lawyer, if you're married to a, a computer engineer, that doesn't mean, ladies, that you have to become a, a doctor or a lawyer or a computer engineer in order to help him be successful. But there are other ways in which you come alongside and, and help him become successful in what he is doing in his life. That does not necessarily mean you can't have a job, you can't work outside the home, you can't develop in many different ways, but those ways always have to be secondary to him because it is the man, biblically, who is the head of the home, who is the one through whom God is working in that home. So uh, what happens today, though, is that some 22 or 23-year-old girl marries, marries a man, and he has one career in mind, and studies indicate today that uh, over the course of a man's life, he's not going to change jobs five times. He's going to change careers five times. So that means that you may marry a man today who has, who's in the military and have a military career, and then when he gets out of the military, he may go into uh, uh, some sort of electrical engineering or computer engineering or something like that. Then he all of a sudden he becomes positive the word and starts growing spiritually, and the next thing you know he's off going to seminary. And this is not the guy you originally married. 
that calls for incredible flexibility on the part of the woman in order to stay with that guy and to make that marriage and that relationship successful. It's much harder for women than it is for men because women have to be successful. If you go back and review what I've taught on marriage in terms of the doctrine of the dance, the dance is a perfect illustration of this because men have to do everything in dancing that men do except they have to do it backwards and they have to do it uh, gracefully. So it's much more difficult for women in many situations than it is for men because of the fact that they are they are there. Their primary role is to support and assist him in his spiritual role of exercising dominion over whatever arena God has placed him in, whatever his particular gifts and talents uh, are. But see, all of that was then marred by sin. The point that I am making up so far in Genesis 1 and, chapter t- and Genesis 2 is that God creates the role distinction between the male and the female before sin ever entered the world. This is there bef- in, under perfect environment. There is an authority relationship in perfect environment. So many people, because we're essentially rebellious as, as Adam's progeny, that, that is the tr- major trend of the sin nature is arrogance and to assert our own authority over against God's authority, that we just can't uh, appreciate the fact that there is authority in paradise. Well, not only was there authority in paradise, there's authority in the Godhead, and that's the point of uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11:3 that Christ, that that God is the head of Christ. Christ is subordinate to the Father, even though He is essentially or ontologically equal to the Father. So role distinction does not mean uh, that there is anything lacking in the person who is in the subordinate position. In fact, in many areas of life, as you grow up, you will recognize that that often people who are in subordinate roles have many more talents and abilities than people who are the boss. And that's just one of the problems we have to face in system testing as we go through life is dealing with somebody over us in a position of authority who is incompetent or untrained or unskilled or has gotten there for other reasons other than his own abilities and his own talents. Well, after Genesis 2, we have the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And then the next element that we learn about in uh, at, at the creation that affects the relationship of the man and the woman is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Genesis 3, verse 16. Genesis three sixteen. God addresses the woman. Now, what happens in this section, we have to understand it in terms of its literary structure. What happens in... In this section, from verse 14 to verse uh, 23, is that God outlines to to each of those involved in the fall what the consequences are of the fall. These are the consequences of the fall. This is not the penalty for the fall. There's a difference. The penalty for the fall was spiritual death. And spiritual death reverberates throughout all of creation and has numerous consequences. The penalty with spiritual death, and these are the consequences. There's consequences for the serpent. His basic uh, biological morphology is now changed so that rather than walking upright, he now crawls on his belly. 
there's going to be antagonism between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of the, of the serpent, which ultimately is Satan, and her seed, which is Jesus Christ. And now he addresses the woman in verse 16. First he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. And the idea in the Greek here is that it's not that she could not conceive beforehand, but there would have been no pain, no labor, nothing negative related to childbirth whatsoever. And now there is going to be pain. There is going to be uh, a sorrow associated with that. There's going to be difficulty, labor pains. All of that is now going to enter into uh, giving birth. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then you have the last clause, which unfortunately has been poorly understood and taught over the, over the years. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And that has been taken by too many over the years to be a positive statement. It is not a positive statement. This is part of the curse announcement of God, the negative consequences of sin. And often that has been taught that the, that the woman's desire will be for her husband, that this is sexual desire. And there's a lot of men who like to live in a fantasy world and think that that means that their wife is going to have this uh, overwhelming sexual desire for them. And I remember, remember teaching this two or three years ago, and a friend of mine in Houston got the tape and listened to it and, and thought that just opened up so much for me, really understood so much about uh, the relationships of husbands and wives after going through this, that he began to uh, pass the tape around to some of, his, some of his friends. And he said, you wouldn't believe the reaction of these arrogant men who just rejected everything you said because they couldn't handle the idea that their wife would not have this incredible sexual desire for them. They just believe that's what that passage said. Well, arrogance has no bounds. We all know that. And there are a lot of men who are just mired in, in male ego and arrogance. This is a negative statement. You just have to look at the context to understand that. Of course, that's the biggest problem with most people is they don't know how to read context anyway because they were, they're products of a secular education system, which is dumbing, dumbing people down so they don't know how to understand context. But the context is negative. Your desire shall be for your husband. And the Hebrew word here is the word teshuka. Teshuka. And this word is used by Moses in one other place in Genesis. And that just happens to be in the next chapter. It's in the next chapter in verse 7. In chapter 4, verse 7, this is a situation where Cain is angry at Abel because Abel's offering has been accepted by the Lord and Cain's offering was rejected. So the Lord comes in this little confrontation with Cain and in verse 6 says to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. And there's that word. That word desire in verse 7 is teshuka. It's the same word used in verse 17. This is not something positive. This is a desire to control and to dominate. A desire to control and to dominate. Now, I can hear some sweet, kind, gentle woman out there saying, but I don't want to dominate my husband. Well, that's probably because of one of two things. Number one, this trend really hasn't become that apparent in your life. See, this is a general trend in this passage between men and women. That doesn't mean that every woman is going to want to dominate and dictate to her husband to the same degree. 
And it could also mean that he's never really challenged your authority, so therefore you don't realize that you're that way. And it could also be that that you're just not married, so you haven't had the test yet. But the desire here is a desire to control, to dominate, to usurp authority. This is the a sin nature uh, predilection for every single female in the species. That given a conflict between what she wants and what her husband wants, 99.9% of the time, unless there's been some serious spiritual growth, she's going to want to do it her way and not his way. And that just goes back to the fall. And the other side of the problem is he shall rule over you. And this is the Hebrew word mashal. And this has the idea in this context of a negative tyrannical reign. In other words, the second part of 316 gives us the beginning of the war of the sexes. That originally under God's order, male and female were both created in his image to work together in harmony to fulfill the dominion mandate. The man was the leader, the woman is the, the responder, and yet because of the curse, instead of her being the helper, she wants to be the leader. And now that his responsibility is toilsome, see, men, you're not going to get away from this. See, his responsibility has now become toilsome. Look down in verse uh, 17, God addresses Adam. And he said, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, labor has become burdensome. It's toilsome. You've got to go out and sweat. It's difficult. There is now conflict. Whereas before exercising dominion would have been in a harmonious relationship with nature, now there's a a conflict. Thorns and thistles are going to come forth now. This shows that the curse of sin changed the, the structure of botany. There were certain types of plants that had built into their genetic structure the ability to go into this or into a very negative type of structure, and they're going to produce thorns and thistles and poisons and all kinds of other negative, negative things as a result of sin. So uh, botany has changed. There are plants that are going to develop that would not have developed otherwise. Verse 19, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So the implication of this is that now that the man's job is toilsome, what is the tendency on the part of the male? The tendency on the part of the male is to avoid burdensome responsibility, and the point and the trend on the woman is to pursue leadership and responsibility. So the tendency is that men are going to want to to avoid certain responsibilities, and women are going to want to take over those responsibilities. And it is that structure that is reversed only through, uh, ultimately, it's reversed only through salvation. And through sanctification. So we see that Genesis 3.16 predicts the basic problems that you have in society on male-female relationship is there is going to be antagonism and control and authority problems, which are the result of sin, which only makes sense because sin itself was a rejection of divine authority. When Eve, or Isha, as she was called at that time, ate of the fruit, she was rebelling against God's authority. When Adam ate of the fruit, he was rebelling against God's authority. And so now rebellion against authority is the modus operandi of fallen man. And so this is going to play itself out 
in male-female relationships so that there's going to be a tendency between men and women to try to dominate each other because everybody wants to have their own way. That's the trend of the sin nature. So that's how we got this way in a general sense. Now, how did we get this way in our own culture? Because it wasn't always this way in American culture. In fact, it was quite different 150 years ago. But what happened? Well, it began with the rejection of a biblical view of origins, that is, creationism, for the mythology of evolution and geologic uniformitarianism. As soon as, as soon as modern man, from the end of the Enlightenment, threw out the truth of the Bible in terms of origins, he began to come up with his own mythology for, for origins. We call this Darwinism in a very broad sense. And according to Darwinism, point number one, if all living things evolve from the one-time chance transformation of one inorganic molecule into an organic molecule, then there are no external absolutes. And that, I mean that in terms of absolute laws. See, in Darwinism, you have time, unlimited time, plus chance produces some sort of order. And according to Darwinism, all living things came from this one molecule that just by raw chance something happened, some set of circumstances which nobody can imagine or duplicate or even in, in, in the uh, laboratory. And as we'll see in our study the next two or three Wednesday nights, uh, people say, well, they've proved, you know, because in a couple of cases they've developed some sort of atmospheric situation where through the introduction of electronic charge they've produced some amino acids, and amino acids are the foundations for proteins, and proteins are the foundation for life. So therefore, this proves that it could have happened. No, it doesn't, because there was an intelligence that guided the whole process, and that proves creation. It doesn't prove evolution at all. It proves that you can't get there without an a, a, a designer who is in introducing intelligence and guidance to the whole system. Pure randomness can't produce anything. Nobody ever uh, thought that you could take all the pieces of your computer and uh, throw them into a room and that somehow that computer is going to come together and uh, produce and, and type out a paper. It won't happen. And there's a lot more information demanded in a, in a cell of your body than in a computer. So... Darwinism put forth the idea that all living things evolve from this one-time chance transformation of an inorganic molecule into an organic molecule, and that would mean that there are no external absolutes. There's no designer. There's nothing that's putting information into the system that everything is developed randomly, and if everything is developed randomly and random chance is the ultimate reality, then all values developed in history are random and relative and culturally determined. Let me give you that conclusion again. This is the logical result of Darwinism. If all life is just by chance and just happened that way, then all meaning and value all norms and standards are all just the product of chance and, and random happenings. In other words, it's the, it's the creature. It's, these are just things that man has generated on his own to sort of make life work, and therefore they're not based on any absolutes whatsoever. And if they were developed by one group of men uh, a thousand years ago, they can just as easily be changed today because everything is just the result of randomness. 
Point number two, the current term for this is that all values and societal structures are social constructs. That's the word that's used, that these are, all of these ideas are social constructs. That means that in one society, you may have, in that society, they may construct relationships one way where you have a, a matriarchy. In another society, you may have uh, that society construct relationships, so there is, let's call it, an extreme uh, patriarchy. In another culture, you may have you may have a uh, an emphasis on non-marital uh, families. That is where the family is raised by the mother and one of the brothers. Then you may have other societies where you have uh, two parent opposite sex uh, family structures. So all of these would be simply constructs developed by each individual society and in postmodernism every society or culture has its own views they are equally good and equally bad none is better than the other none is worse than the other so what we have here is we have to according to postmodernism is that everybody comes out of some kind of social construct and this is the bias or the prejudice that they bring when they come to the Bible. See, this is what introduces the, the interpretation problem. And where the feminists are coming from and where the postmodernists are coming from is the idea that, well, you just come out of a, out of a society or a social background that has trained you to prefer patriarchy and male leadership, and so that's why you interpret the Bible that way. But there are others who don't come out of that background, and they're going to interpret the Bible another way. So who are you to say that you are right? See, that denies any kind of objectivity, any kind of external reality that is absolute truth. The problem with this is that there are many problems with it, but if all of these are equally good, then extreme patriarchy is as as good as matriarchy. But that's not the conclusion they reach. You see, they can't live within their own system. In their own system, any view is equally good, oh, unless it happens to support uh, male leadership or Christianity or the Bible. So we have to throw that social construct out. All other social constructs are valuable. So that's point three. Inconsistently, they claim that all are equal, but the problem is that there are some that are worse, and that is those cultures that favor male leadership. Point number four, the result of this is that men and women are no longer to be understood to be what they are by virtue of God's creation plan, but their identity is determined by sociological factors and culturally relative norms and standards. Let me give that to you again. The result of this... Let me see if I have this. I don't have this up on the overhead. The result of this is that men and women are no longer understood to be what they are, or in fact who they are, by virtue of God's creation, that is someone external who is putting information into the system and 
and defining who men and women are by virtue of his creative uh, sovereignty, but their identity is determined only by sociological factors and culturally relative norms and standards. And five, that means that since man determines these categories, man can reconstruct the categories. They're just socially relative. So you can, if, if, if men are the leaders in one generation, you can come around and make women the leaders in the next generation, and it doesn't affect anything. Thus we have in our day a huge social experiment to make males and females interchangeable. This is the core problem, is we've bought the lie that men and women, are, are their roles are completely interchangeable. However, this flies in the face of a lot of basic observations. So I want to go over some differences between men and women that are documented in, uh, in medical literature. Now, it may seem obvious to many of you that men and women are different. I mean, you just look around and... And from my observation up here, I can spot most of the men and most of the women, and it doesn't take a whole lot of intelligence to do so. Nevertheless, a major plank in the platform of modern feminism rejects that idea. They try to act as if that's not true, and they set forth the notion that men and women are virtually interchangeable. I mean, the very fact that they go in and try to change the wording in textbooks and they try to change pictures and all that shows that they want to redefine these differences and act as if they don't exist. And despite the absurdity of that idea, they have practiced this big lie technique. You know what the big lie technique is. Goebbels fine-tuned it with the Nazis. And that is, if you say, if so, even if something is completely absurd, if you say it loud enough, loudly enough, long enough, then people will begin to believe you simply because you keep saying it, and sooner or later it breaks down their defenses. And that's exactly what's happened. That by the practice of the big lie technique, that many people and many believers have inadvertently absorbed enough of this poisonous idea to have become toxic to modern society. There are many people who don't realize how deeply this has affected their own outlook on life. Well, let's look at some of the, um, some of the similarities in men and women, first of all. What are some of the similarities? There are many similarities. First of all, they're both created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1, 26, and 28. They are equal image bearers. Second, men and women have the same capacity to reason, to think, to understand, and to communicate. They have equal abilities. Now, that's generally speaking. You may look across a congregation, and you might be a woman and say, gosh, my intellectual abilities certainly exceed his. Well, that may be true, but we're talking in generally between men and women right now. Third, physically, there are many similarities. They, they walk upright. They have opposable thumbs. They have the same number of chromosomes, 46, and the same kind of blood. They are related. They are identical in many, many ways. And fourth, they are both equally marred and defaced by sin, and thus equal in their capacity for evil and their sin nature. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And point number five, men and women stand in equal need of salvation, and both men and women had their sins paid for by the substitutionary spiritual death of the one man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator, the man, 
Christ Jesus. So this indicates an inherent unity in, in the human race. Male and female can both be redeemed by the uh, death of one man, Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to go through some additional information here a bit rapidly. First of all, because we're running out of time. And secondly, you don't need to take notes on every part of this. This comes from uh, an article written in Family Life magazine a number of years ago by Dr. Paul Papineau. And he noted the following differences between men and women. There are differences. Men and women differ in every cell of their bodies. This difference is in the chromosome combination and is the basic cause of development into maleness or femaleness, as the case may be. So there's a different chromosome combination, even though they both have the same number of chromosomes. Point two, woman, or the female, has greater constitutional vitality, perhaps because of this uh, chromosome difference. Normally, she outlives the male by three or four years in the U.S., there seems to, and also I think that because of childbirth, my observation is that women can handle pain better than men can. Women, just check that out the next time your husband gets sick. Third, the sexes differ in their basal metabolism, that of the woman being normally lower than that of a man. Next time one of you ladies tries to lose weight, you just know that you won't lose it as fast as your husband will until you all get over 50 and then it's a even playing field. Fourth, they differ in skeletal structure. The woman has a shorter head, broader face. Her chin is generally less protruding, shorter legs, and a longer trunk. So there are some basic physical differences. This is general. This Don't try to uh, compare this one-to-one. Fifth, he says, there are differences in the sizes of the in- internal organs. A woman has a larger stomach, not belly, but stomach. Internal organs. Kidney, yeah, because if you're married to a guy who's a beer drinker, he probably has a bigger belly. Uh, kidneys, liver, and appendix, but a woman has smaller lungs and therefore smaller uh, lung capacity. In functions, point number six, in functions, he says, women have several very important, uh, several important functions are totally lacking in the male. For example, men, women have menstruation, pregnancy, and lactation. This is something that doesn't happen in men at all. This all relates to the unique role that women have in terms of uh, producing life. Seventh, women's, the woman's blood contains more water. She has 20% fewer red cells. And since the red cells supply oxygen to the body cells, she tires more easily. She is more prone to faint. And her constitutional viability is therefore strictly a long-range matter. Eighth, in brute strength, men are 50% above women. In fact, if you take an out-of-shape middle-aged male, he usually can bench press a greater percentage of his body weight than an in-shape younger female. And yet we want to put women in combat, but that's another story. Ninth, a woman's heart beats more rapidly, 80 beats a minute and versus 72 for the male. Their woman's blood pressure averages 10 points lower than a male, but it varies from minute to minute. Women have a much lower tendency to high blood pressure until after menopause. Tenth, the woman's vital capacity or breathing power, that's because her lungs are smaller, remember, is lower than the male by a ratio of 7 to 10. And then 11, the woman stands a high temperature better than a man does. 
There are also some other differences. The male is uh, clearly designed to be an aggressor, to initiate and to penetrate. The female is designed to receive and respond. There are also various differences in brain functioning that are biologically inherent and not determined by cultural factors alone. For example, verbal and spatial abilities in boys operate out of different areas of the brain than in girls. I was typing some of this late last night, so that's why we have the typos. Point two, from shortly after birth, females are more sensitive to certain types of sounds, particularly to a mother's voice, but also to loud noises. Third, girls have more skin sensitivity, particularly in the fingertips, and are more proficient at fine motor uh, performance. Fourth, he notes, girls speak sooner, have larger vocabularies, rarely demonstrate speech defects, exceed boys in language abilities, and learn foreign languages more easily. Fifth, boys show early visual superiority. Sixth, girls are more attentive to social context, faces, speech patterns, and subtle vocal cues. That's why, guys, you'll be in a conversation, and your wife will be there, and she'll come home and say, did you notice this, this, and this? You know, I didn't have a clue. And she picked up on all kinds of things that were going on, and you guys were just clueless. That's why you need to listen to your wives at times. Seven, the boys have better total body coordination, but are poorer at detailed hand activity, for example, stringing beads. Eight, the boys have that. This is his study. It's not mine. Boys have different attentional mechanisms and react as quickly to inanimate objects as to a person. I thought that was interesting. Boys will react as quickly to an inanimate object, like a toy gun, as to a person. Nine, boys are more curious about exploring their environment. Tenth, boys are better at manipulating three-dimensional space. They can mentally, I want to know how they studied this. You know, this scientific testing has its own own realm of study. They they can a boy can mentally rotate or fold an object better. Now I want to know how they can measure that. Eleventh of eleven subtests given for psychological measurements, and quote the most widely used general intelligence test, uh, only two that is digit span and picture arrangement, only two reveal similar mean scans for males and females. These sex differences are so consistent that since the 1970s, uh, the standard battery for this intelligence test now contains a masculine and feminine index to offset sex-related proficiencies and deficiencies. Obviously, there are differences between men and women. Uh, Twelfth, girls who are assertive and active and can control events have greater intellectual development while these factors are not as significant in male intellectual development. Thirteen, in case you didn't recognize this, more boys are hyperactive. More than 90% of hyperactives are are males. Fourteen, because the male brain is primarily visual and learns by manipulating its environment, listening instruction for boys in early elementary grades is more stressful for them. Girls, therefore, tend to exceed them at that age. They can listen and pick it up, whereas guides need to have it uh, visually displayed. 
Fifteen, girls do less well on scholarship tests that are more geared for male performance at higher grades. And then last but not least, sixteenth, men are generally more aggressive, more inclined toward planned organization, and more likely to be interested in external environment, while women are more people-related and better at details in communication and hand dexterity. Now, these are general trends noted in a variety of different studies. All of this supports the biblical uh, teaching that there is a difference between men and women. God designed them not only different physically, but different in terms of their soul, talents, and makeup. I mean, not, I don't mean makeup in the sense of the basic components of the soul, but the man is designed as a leader. He has leadership traits, whereas the woman is designed to be a responder and a receiver. This is clear both in terms of their physical makeup and in terms of their soul makeup. So there is distinctly a male soul and a female soul, and these have to be recognized. Now, we're going to take some conclusions from this, and next time we will get into the text of 1 Corinthians 11 and start looking at this whole head covering issue and what's going on there. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had today. We thank you that you clearly teach us who we are, what our responsibilities are, and through your word we have a clear understanding of who we are as men and women. That even though this has been distorted and marred by the fall, there is recovery through redemption and through the study of your word we can learn who we are in, under the under Bible doctrine in our soul and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can see in our lives the reversal of the negative trends from the sin nature. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Every single human being is born under the condemnation of sin. But God so loved the world that he sent his unique son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. All that is necessary to have eternal salvation is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust Him for salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today and that you would challenge us with these things, that we might put them into a more consistent application in our own lives, in our own relationships, our own marriages and families. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.